So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. So if you want to turn your Bibles there with me, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. And I'm just going to do a little bit of an introduction to get us going here as you turn there. So throughout the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have seen encounter after encounter um, between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And four weeks ago specifically, in Mark chapter 7, we saw Jesus identify the Jews' religion as a distorted form of worship. A form of worship that focused exclusively on the hands, that is what they could do with their bodies, and was disconnected from the worshiper's heart. Uh, Jesus said it like this, he said that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we talked uh, four weeks ago about the way that God views this kind of distorted worship, that he, that he abhors it. And this was one of the most significant encounters with Jesus and the religious leaders. It marks a very distinct point in the ministry, in the Gospel of Mark here, where Jesus is calling out the religious leaders for their false worship. And what we see here now as we turn to Mark chapter 11, four weeks later, is we see another encounter with Jesus and the religious leaders. And this is where everything kind of comes to a head between the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. As Jesus enters the temple and he sees the way that they are misusing God's sacred dwelling place. He really sees the fruitlessness and heartlessness of their religion. And he acts accordingly as we'll see here. Now as we stand back and look at this and, and as the disciples were taking in these events, I think that this episode becomes a powerful lesson for Jesus' disciples and for us about fruitlessness and the judgment that is sure to come as a result of fruitlessness and a religion uh, that does not bear fruit. And so as we look at the text this morning, we're, we're aiming to see two things. We're aiming to see both the judgment for unfruitfulness, and we want to also see the source of a fruitful life. So keep those two things in mind as we look here at the text. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Mark says, On the following day, when they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And, he, and then he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
Father, we come to you this morning as we do every Sunday, longing to see truth in your word, desiring to see Jesus more clearly, that our faith might be strengthened, and that we might live more faithful and fruitful lives for you. So I pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, as we look into this reality of fruitless religion and judgment, that you would speak clearly to us and that your spirit would be working in us, making us ready to hear. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, very interestingly, this story does not actually begin with Jesus entering into the temple. It actually begins with him and his disciples' journey from Bethlehem, or from Bethany rather, to the temple. And it's along the way that they encounter this fig tree. And this is where the story really begins. And so as they are, actually I want to read it again real quick. Uh, Verses 12 through 14. On the following day, They came from Bethany, and Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, as Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the temple from Bethany, Jesus becomes hungry, as the text says. And hoping to satisfy his hunger, he's looking around and he sees a fig tree in the distance. The text says that the fig tree is in leaf. So it kind of looks like there might be something going on there where they could get something to eat. But as Jesus approaches the fig tree, he comes to find that although the tree gave the appearance of being fruitful, it was actually completely barren. There was no fruit on it at all. And it's because of this tree's deceptive appearance of having the leaves but no fruit, and ultimately its lack of ability to produce fruit, that Jesus speaks a word of judgment to the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, when we read this, and as Christian interpreters have read this over the course of the centuries, many people have been very confused as to what this is all about. It seems very strange for Jesus to curse or judge this fig tree for it not having fruit on it when the text explicitly tells us that it wasn't the season for figs, right? That's what Mark says. It wasn't the season for figs. And so that's led many people to say that, oh, this is just a... This is just Jesus losing his temper. This is just some lack of self-control on the part of uh, the Son of God, God in the flesh, right? He's just upset. He's just frustrated. This is, this, is, uh, this is a problem. This is a problem for us. We don't understand what's going on here. But I think that there is good reason in the text uh, to understand that this is a very intentional action and word of judgment from Jesus, I think that what Jesus is doing here is that he is judging this fruit tree, and as he is doing it, it actually is a type of symbolic object lesson on fruitlessness and judgment. And there's three reasons why I think that is the case, three reasons that we see in the text. So the first reason that I think that this is very intentional on Jesus' part and not just some lack of self-control is that verse 13, as we've said already, said that it wasn't the season for figs. 
Now, if Mark knew it wasn't the season for figs, I'm assuming that Jesus knew it wasn't the season for figs. And so coming up to this tree, he wasn't actually expecting to find fruit on it. Rather, he was seeking to make a point to his disciples about fruitlessness and the judgment that will come for it. Not only this, if you back up to verse 11, which we didn't read, we see that Jesus visited the temple the night before the fig tree incident. Look at verse 11. It says, after the triumphal entry, that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then in verse 12, on the following day, they set off for the temple and they encounter this fig tree. So we see also here that Jesus already knows what's going on in the temple. He already knows what the religious leaders are doing to misuse the temple. And so this is on the forefront of his mind as they are journeying there. And so he stops along the way at this fig tree. We start to see the intentionality here building up. But what I think really seals the deal here for this symbolic object lesson or understanding it in this way is the structure of Mark's story. I don't know if you caught it as we read through it, but the way that Mark structures his story about the temple judgment is he starts it with the fig tree and the judgment of the fig tree. And then they enter the temple and Jesus judges the religious leaders there. And then he ends the story coming back to the fig tree. So Mark in the structure of the story really bookends this temple scene with the fig tree on either side, telling us that the fig tree incident is really about the center. It's really about Jesus' judgment in the temple. Now, if this fig tree is meant to be a symbolic object lesson on fruitlessness and judgment, we have to answer the question, well, what does the fig tree represent? I think that the tree is a symbol of the religious leaders and the nation of Israel as a whole. It's a symbol of their heartless, fruitless religion. Notice the chief similarity here. Both the tree and the religious leaders gave the appearance of fruitfulness. But upon closer examination, both were found to be frauds and hypocrites, bearing no fruit for God. No matter how lush the tree looked, it was still barren. And no matter how much the religious leaders boasted of holiness and righteousness, their religion was fruitless. It bore nothing honoring to God. That's the chief similarity here. And so knowing this and understanding what the tree symbolizes brings clarity to Jesus' word of judgment against the tree. This isn't simply a judgment against an innocent fig tree. This is a symbolic judgment against an idolatrous people. And that becomes blatantly obvious as the scene shifts to the temple. The lesson on fruitlessness and judgment that Jesus is aiming to teach his disciples becomes more potent as the scene shifts from judgment on a fruitless tree to judgment on a fruitless religion. And we see that as they enter the temple in verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem 
And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now what we ultimately see here is Jesus' act of judgment against the religious leaders and those who were in the temple misusing it. And before we talk about the act of judgment, we first need to look at the sacredness and the holiness of the temple and how the religious leaders were actually misusing it. It's really hard for us, uh, 2,000 years later, not ingrained in the same culture as the Israelites and the Jews were, to really understand how significant the temple was to them. The temple was the place uh, where Israel went to worship God. It was the place where God promised that his presence would dwell and where the worshiper could go to meet him. If you study the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll notice how God is commanding uh, Moses and the Israelites to build what was the tent of meeting and then the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. And he lays out these perfect dimensions. He lays out how everything needs to be perfect, needs to be made out of this kind of material. He talks about all the different furniture that is to go inside of the temple and all of the different symbolic representations for it. And then when we see the sacrifices start coming, we see that not only do the people need to be cleansed, but the temple itself needs to be cleansed if God's presence is actually going to dwell there. Because sinful people have entered into the temple, it has to be cleansed as well. And so we see that because of God's promise to dwell in the temple, for the Jew, the temple was the most sacred place, the most holy place on the entire planet. You couldn't get closer to God than being in the temple. It was the essence, the heart of Israel's worship to God. But what Jesus saw as he entered the temple was anything but sacred. And this is ultimately what provokes him to drive them out. But we have to look here and ask, how were the religious leaders misusing the temple? And verse 16 or verse 15 speaks of those who sold and bought in the temple and also of those who were exchanging and changing money there. And without some historical background, it could be a little difficult for us to understand what was going on. So hear what commentator R.C. Sproul has to say about what was going on in the temple. He says, The religious leaders had turned the court of the Gentiles, which was an area in the temple, into a stockyard for commercial purposes. The sale of animals for sacrifice had become one of the most lucrative sources of revenue for the religious leaders. For the celebration of Passover, a feast of obligation for every Jew, the Jews streamed into Jerusalem from all quarters of the ancient world, needing to buy sheep for the sacrifices and to exchange money, currency, to be able to buy the animals. He says that the animals were sold for a premium because the people needed them and the exchange rates were extortionate. 
So we see here that the religious leaders misused the temple by turning it into a place where they could grossly gain financially. They were using the holy temple of God for personal selfish gain. And not only this, this really came at the expense of the one who sought to draw near to God and to worship him, right? Not only were they grossly gaining financially because of the extortionate exchange rates and the inflated prices for these animals, they were doing this at the expense of people who wanted to come and connect with God through worshiping and through offering a sacrifice to him. You see, though the religious leaders boasted of a lush and fruitful religion, upon closer examination, they themselves and their religion was found to be barren, fruitless, producing nothing honoring to God. And it was upon seeing this disregard of God's sacred dwelling place that provokes Jesus to a holy anger, a holy indignation, which leads to his act of judgment against them that we've already read through. As soon as Jesus steps foot in the temple, he begins to overturn the tables and the seats of those who sold there, the money changers, and to forcefully drive out those who are buying and selling. For, for a lot of us, this is a very uncomfortable scene because uh, we don't like to see Jesus in this way and we don't often see him in this way in any of the gospel accounts. This is a very rare event of Jesus' anger and indignation against the religious leaders. And we have to understand what's going on here. Jesus didn't go into the temple and say, excuse me, could you please take your table and, and leave? Could, could you please take your animals, and, and leave. No, that's, that's not what the text says. And, and in another scene where Jesus does this in the Gospel of John early in his ministry, it actually says that he gets a whip and starts beating people to get them out of the temple. Jesus wasn't kindly asking them to leave. He was forcefully driving them out. And I think that the severity of the way that Jesus handles the situation speaks directly to the severity of their sin, of their misuse of God's holy temple. Now, verse 16 tells us, presumably, that once they were all out, that Jesus stood guard and would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Can you imagine what this act of judgment would have communicated to the Jews and specifically the religious leaders who were there? The religious leaders were so pompous and so prideful that they believed that it was their God-given right to be in the temple. This was their house. This was where they went to worship God. This was the house of their God. If anyone had a right to be there, it was them. And yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't just go in and rebuke them, which he does. He forces them to leave. Imagine the impression that would have left on their minds. The impression that we get from this is that Jesus was ridding the temple of the false worship that was happening at the hands of the religious leaders. He was ridding the temple of what defiled it, the religious leaders themselves. 
That's striking. It would have come across very uh, hard to swallow for the religious leaders. Now, not only does Jesus perform this act of judgment on the religious leaders in the temple, but he follows it with a word of judgment, just like we saw him speak a word of judgment to the tree, right? And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now here Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages to form his word of judgment against the Jews' fruitless religion. First, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which shows the intended use of the temple as a house of prayer for all the nations. And then secondly, he uses Jeremiah 7, 11 to condemn the Jews for turning the house of God into a den of robbers. And we have to understand what the religious leaders are doing here. Not only are they not using the temple for the purpose that God had intended it for, but they are also intentionally misusing the temple for evil and wicked purposes. So it's not like they're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're actually doing what they're not supposed to be doing. All at the same time. And this is Jesus' word of judgment against them. You have turned the house of God into a den of robbers. The Jews' idolatrous hearts produced a religion that was fruitless for God. And Jesus comes to let them know that God is not pleased and that you will be judged. That's ultimately what he is saying here. Now Mark closes out this temple scene with the religious leader's response to Jesus. And it's a response that confirms their judgment. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they repented. No, that's not what it says. They heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This episode should be a warning to all who profess faith in God while at the same time embrace a fruitless religion. A religion that focuses exclusively on what I do and not on the disposition of my heart towards God and towards others. Do you practice a religion that never changes you? Do you come Sunday after Sunday, encounter Jesus through his word and leave unchanged. Four weeks ago, when we were in Mark chapter 7, we talked about that distorted form of worship and how God abhors it. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I encouraged you to assess your worship to assess what determines your worship, to assess how you worship God, and if your heart is actually a part of that worship. 
Did you take the word of God and strive to apply it to your life? Did you take the word of God and think about it after leaving this place? Even once. Have you come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for four Sundays now since that Sunday? And there's no change. That might say something about the quality of your relationship with God. That might say something about the religion that you believe that you are a part of. It might say that just like the religious leaders, your hearts aren't in it. The religious leaders had encounter after encounter after encounter with Jesus, and they left every one unchanged. Afforded the opportunity to repent here again, upon understanding what they had done in the desecration of the temple, they don't repent. Instead, they look for a way to destroy him. We have to get rid of Jesus. And you have to understand that if, if you live this religious life that has a disconnected and idolatrous heart and simply does, 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 you will get to the same place. You will get to the same place where you will start to try to get rid of Jesus. Is that where you are this morning? If you are unmoved by the Word of God, maintaining a distorted and fruitless worship, you must understand that judgment is on the horizon. That's what's being communicated here. And I love you guys too much not to tell you that. Jesus says that judgment is coming. If that's you, you are going to meet the same end that the fig tree meets. And we see that in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. You see, the story has now come full circle. The fruitless tree symbolized a fruitless people that will be judged and wither for their fruitlessness, for their barrenness, for their false religion. A barrenness and a fruitlessness that, let's not forget, is a byproduct of their idolatrous hearts and their distorted worship. Judgment is sure to come to those who refuse to repent of their distorted worship that leads to a fruitless religion. This is what the Word speaks to you who are here, like the religious leaders who reject Jesus. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to turning to Jesus with your life and embracing Him. But we must also ask, what is the lesson for those who follow Jesus? Let's not forget that Jesus isn't doing these things in isolation, right? His disciples are all around him, observing what he is doing. So how would Jesus' disciples have received this symbolic lesson on fruitlessness and judgment? 
I think for us to understand the full effect of this event on the disciples, we need to jump ahead about three days. A few days from these miraculous events with the fig tree and the temple judgment, Jesus was in the upper room giving his parting words to his disciples the night before he would be crucified. And this is what he says in Mark, or not Mark, uh, John 15, the first six verses of John 15. As I'm reading this, listen to the similarity of what we just walked through in Mark with what Jesus says here, okay? Listen for the similarities. In a closed quarters with his disciples, this is what he says. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I can't help but think that when the disciples heard Jesus say these words, their mind jumped back three days ago to the judgment on the fig tree and the judgment of the religious leaders in the temple. Here in John 15, Jesus is using similar agricultural imagery of fruitlessness and judgment that we see in Mark chapter 11. The reason the Jews' religion was fruitless and therefore worthy of judgment was because they rejected the source of fruitfulness. They rejected Jesus. Like one of these branches that seek to do it on their own and are ultimately wither away and are judged. Burned up. This would have struck a chord with the disciples. Now I think that Jesus is warning his disciples to not be like the religious leaders with this fruitless, heartless religion. But he also here positively prescribes what is necessary for a life of fruitfulness. And we see that in verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is saying that the degree to which we will bear fruit is directly connected to the depth of our connection to him. That's what he's saying. In light of that reality, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Is your life bearing fruit for God? How would you determine if it was? What would be a gauge? There's a lot of different things that Scripture says that we can gauge our fruitfulness for God on. Let's just consider one thing. Let's consider the fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Nobody wants to say that one. Take love, for instance. Is the Holy Spirit producing in you a greater love both for God and for the people who are around you? Is that manifested in a genuine desire to worship God from your heart and a desire to show love and kindness to those who are around you? Joy. Is the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of joy in your life? A joy that is not dependent upon how big or how small your bank account is or how well your portfolio did last year or what toy you have in the garage, but a joy that is deeply rooted in who you are in Christ, in who you are in Him. Peace. Is the Holy Spirit producing peace in your life? A peace that transcends any situation that you could find yourself in. Any of the difficult realities that you are walking through, is the Holy Spirit producing peace in you? Patience. Parents, I I say this completely sympathizing with you. Is the Holy Spirit producing patience in you for your children? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you walking in the repentance that Scripture says should mark the daily experience of the Christian? Are you actively seeking to mortify and kill the sin in your life? And actively seeking to obey the commands of God? Is your life bearing fruit for God? Now we must not only ask this question of us as individual Christians... We must also ask it of us as a church. Is our church bearing fruit for God? Uh, Jesus in John 15 defines or at least identifies partly uh, the reality of bearing fruit with obeying his commands. Do we come to church Sunday by Sunday and, and simply play church? Are we about obeying Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations? Are we bearing fruit in those ways? Are we committed to taking the gospel outside of these walls? Into our homes, to our children, into our workplaces, to our co-workers, into our schools, to our friends and our teachers, into our community. Is our church bearing fruit for God? What if the answer to these questions is not like we should be or no? If it's a no and you never see any fruit in your life, you probably need to be converted. You probably need a Holy Spirit heart transformation 
you probably need to get on your face and ask Jesus for forgiveness. If it's not like we should, then we need to assess the quality of our connection to Jesus. If we long to see greater fruit as individual Christians, we must seek a more meaningful relationship with Christ. If we want to be a church that is making a difference in this world for Christ, we must be together saturating ourselves with the glory of Christ. That's why we as pastors strive to preach Christ to you every Sunday. That's why we provide for you Christ-centered, gospel-centered resources to take in. This is why we reframed our core values to show how the gospel influences every part of our lives as a church and should influence every part of our lives as individual Christians. This is why we are training our ABF leaders to integrate the gospel into every discussion. This is why we train our community group leaders to lead their groups to Jesus, the chief shepherd. This is why we're in the process of training our children's ministry teachers to show our children Jesus every Sunday. Because we understand what Jesus is saying here. If we are going to bear fruit in our lives as individual Christians and as a church, it must come through a deep, abiding connection to Jesus. If you're seeking that some other way, it's never going to happen. So brothers and sisters, how is your connection with Christ? How is your relationship with Jesus? Is it weak? Do you define it as hanging on by a thread? You can tell by looking at the fruit that you bear. If it's weak, what do you need to do? You need to saturate yourself with the glory of Christ. You need to invest in your relationship with him. You need to have a more abiding, deep connection to the vine. And what if you sit here today and the relationship with Christ is great, strong. You can see that in your life. You're bearing fruit for God. The admonition is the same to you. You have to leave this place and continue to saturate yourself with the glory of Christ. We sang about it this morning. Our hearts are prone to wander, are they not? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Your heart is prone to wander. So the question that I want you to leave with this morning is how are you going to saturate yourself with Christ today and I want you to think about this if you come back next week sit in these pews and listen to the word preached again you don't see any change in your life 
Remember this. Remember this sermon. And then run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are supremely gracious to us. That you didn't have to put this passage in the Bible. But you chose to. You chose to put it here to warn us. You chose to put it here to wake us up. You chose to put it here to create a deeper longing in us for Jesus. And you chose to allow everyone who's seated here today to hear that. And that's grace. And so we pray that you would continue to pour that out upon us through the work of your Holy Spirit as we leave. That you would create in us a deeper understanding of our need for Jesus and of our dependence upon him to be faithful followers and fruitful followers. May we leave here thinking about these truths and these realities and most of all thinking about Jesus and how we can saturate ourselves with his glory. May all of this be to the end that you desire, a faithful people, a fruitful people, a people that love you. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.